The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Amen. Our God is great, and now we have the privilege to learn about the great Lord Jesus Christ and His second coming, and we're going to do that now. I'd invite you to keep a finger in Revelation 19 if you have your Bible, and we also have uh, notes provided in the bulletin, and I'm going to read some Old Testament passages before we get to Revelation 19. So we're actually looking at Revelation 19 over the course of three weeks because it's really three different scenes. Uh, as I said, some of you may be visiting or relatively recent to Grace Bible Fellowship. We've started Revelation actually in the very beginning, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, and just going through recently chapter by chapter. It's actually been exciting. Uh, it's the last book in the Bible given by God through inspiration. It says how everything ends, the conclusion. Nothing worse than reading a book and then not reading the end to find out how everything ends. But this is a true story of world history and God's plan for eternity. And uh, another reason that we uh, are studying Revelation because, listen to this, Revelation is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness in order that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped, or thoroughly furnished for every good work. If you want to become a mature Christian, then getting the full counsel of God in your mind is absolutely essential. And every one of the 66 books of the Bible is equally important, equally inspired, and uh, we need to know it. So that's a very important reason why we have taken the time to go through Revelation one chapter at a time. Even maybe to some of you, it's it's foreign, it's scary, it's weird or whatever. Uh, that doesn't matter. It's inspired of God and profitable for teaching and has fantastic benefits. So um, it's a, a blessing to do so. So today we're looking at Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 16, the glorious return of Jesus Christ. And as soon as in the Christian world, you mentioned the coming of Jesus Christ. Some common questions come to the surface, or at least common topics of interest. Because usually when you're talking about the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, uh, the conversation quickly gravitates to answering the question of when. Everybody wants to know, well, when's that going to happen? Does the Bible tell us when, when, when? It's just the perennial question that we as human beings, I guess we want to know. When, when, when? But it's kind of interesting if you search the scriptures and the teachings about the coming of the Messiah, uh, the emphasis is not answering the question when, not at all. And that's true also of Revelation 19. We're going to see that uh, Revelation 19, 11 through 16, the coming of Jesus Christ does not answer the question of when, but it answers a couple of very important questions uh, beside that. And we're going to look at that. Before I do get to uh, a couple of Old Testament passages to lay the foundation, uh, just an overview or a quick summary and survey of truths regarding the coming of the Messiah, the return of Christ, whether it's the rapture or the second coming, the first coming of Christ, especially the second coming of Jesus Christ, because there are a lot of misconceptions or foggy understanding regarding the coming of Christ and eschatology, which is the study of last things or prophecy. Uh, time and time again, when people become members at GBF, uh, a common repeated uh, refrain or whatever that happens is when, when they read through our statement of faith, it's got 14 points. The last point, 14, is on eschatology and uh, how things are going to wrap up at the end of the age, prophecy, the coming of Christ. Uh, many people who join our church, they're just honest and say, I, 
I agree with the statement of faith insofar as I understand it, but it, frankly, to be honest, I don't know all this eschatology stuff. How do you spell eschatology? How do you pronounce it? Is that correct? Uh, my background just is weak in that area, and it's, I find it very confusing. And can I still join your church? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Because that's, we're just saying that's what we are committed to teaching on, and we need to inform and teach our saints, even in that area, eschatology. So a lot of Christians just dismiss it and say it's not important. Uh, but it is important. So maybe to helpfully clarify some things regarding the, the mysterious coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the age, keep these things in mind. The Old Testament prophets who were inspired of God as they wrote their scripture, they were moved by the Holy Spirit to write written scripture. The prophets who even wrote about the coming of the Messiah, uh, the Old Testament prophets, they knew of only one coming of the Messiah. That's it. Can you imagine that? That was their frame of mind. So all these references and promises to the coming of a Messiah... In their mind, in their vantage point, there was only one coming. They didn't have this idea of a second coming. Christians talk about the second coming of the Messiah. You know, we're the only religion that talks about like, like that. The Jews before Jesus didn't know of a second coming. They only knew of one coming. Uh, because many of these prophecies, like in Isaiah, the whole chapter is on a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And the first part of the prophecy refers to his first coming. And the second part of the prophecy refers to his second coming in glory. But when the prophet wrote that, Isaiah, he didn't know that. He thought it was the same event. So here's the fir- from our perspective, here's the first coming of Christ. Here's the second coming of Christ. And in between, we've got like 2,000 years so far. That's our perspective. And from the Jews' perspective, this was the coming of Christ. First and second coming were one. They didn't see this space of time between. So we need to appreciate uh, their understanding. So the Old Testament prophets, they only knew of one coming, not more than one. And if, from our perspective, if he added the first coming of Christ and then Christ coming at the rapture and then the coming of Christ through the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, like he said in the Gospel of John, I will come to you and live in you through the Holy Spirit. And then the, the second coming of Christ, four comings of the Messiah. You won't find that in the Old Testament. Uh, Another thing that is very clear is the Old Testament prophets who wrote frequently of the coming of Christ, they did not know the timing of the coming of the Messiah. And that that was a challenge for them. That probably frustrated some of them. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter. I'll just read it. It's one verse. 1 Peter chapter 1. As to the salvation regarding the coming of the Messiah, the prophets in the Old Testament who prophesied of Jesus' coming who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, they made, these prophets made careful search and inquiry regarding their own prophets, seeking to know what person, who is this Messiah going to be, and also seeking to know the timing that the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted. So they were, they did not know the timing of when the Messiah was going to come. It was a mystery even to the prophets that wrote about His coming. Uh, all Old Testament prophets did not know that the Messiah would come and actually live inside people. That is a, a mystery and a truth in the New Testament that Christ would live in you, the hope of glory. The Old Testament had no teaching on the idea that the Messiah would live in individuals. The New Covenant in Jeremiah talked about the Holy Spirit would live in people, but not the Messiah. So that was an amazing truth that was hidden from them that we have the privilege of understanding. Uh, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament Jews, based on Old Testament teaching, they saw the coming of the Messiah as primarily a military or the Messiah as a military conqueror. A real, literal, military conqueror. That did not happen the first time Jesus came. But it will happen. That's reserved for the second coming. Old Testament saints, because of the teaching of the Old Testament, they saw the Messiah 
as one who ushered in a literal earthly kingdom based on all the prophecies that were given. That did not happen the first time when Jesus came. He ushered in a spiritual kingdom. But these Old Testament prophecies regarding an earthly kingdom that will be ushered in literally on earth, that is going to happen. And that happens and is ushered in with the coming of Jesus Christ at his second coming. Um, the Bible emphasizes not when the Messiah comes, but who is coming when he comes. And we're going to see that's the emphasis in Revelation 19. Not when he comes, but who it is that is coming and what he's going to do when he comes. It's eye-opening. It's actually startling what Jesus does when he comes the second time. Mark 13.32 says that Jesus, when he was at the end of his ministry and he was about to die, he was in the incarnation. And Philippians 2 says that uh, he was God, eternal God of the universe without a body. And then he decided to come down to this earth that he created and he humbled himself and he became a man to do that. And he emptied himself. And what Jesus emptied himself of as eternal God and part of the Trinity was his right to exercise all of his deity and attributes and rights as God. And he relinquished everything in terms of initiating his own will when he incarnated as the God-man and became 100% dependent upon the Father and the Spirit who led him moment by moment, day by day as the God-man. That's a mystery we can't comprehend how the eternal God of the universe could become encased in a human body and be the God-man and still 100% God, 100% man. But Needless to say, in Jesus' incarnation for the 33 years on earth, he limited himself. It was self-inflicted, if you will. He said, I, I know everything, but I'm going to limit myself during the incarnation to be totally dependent upon the Father. And part of this limited knowledge that he acquiesced to during that 33 years was in Mark 13, 32, just before his death, talking about his return. And he said, nobody knows the day or the hour when the Messiah will return the second time. Not even the angels, not even the Son of Man. So when Jesus said that in his incarnation, he did not even know the day or the hour that he would return. But I need to correct something, though, for a lot of people who misconstrue that verse. Before he died, Jesus also prayed in John 17, and he was praying to the Father, and he said, Father, restore unto me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Restore me to full glory. And that's exactly what the Father did. So when Jesus died, rose again from the dead, ascended on high, Jesus was reinstated or restored to full eternal glory. And from that point on, he knew everything once again. He was omniscient. In the words of John chapter 21, when Peter said, when Jesus said to Peter, Lord, or when Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? And then Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You're omniscient. And then we see that in Revelation 2 and 3. The glorified, resurrected, ascended Messiah on high knows everything. That's why Jesus says in Revelation, I know your thoughts, I know your the uh, deeds, I know everything about you. So Jesus now knows his day, he knows his hour. All authority has been given to him by virtue of his resurrection and ascension, as he says in Matthew 28. He has assumed that eternal, glorious role once again. So it would not be true to say that Jesus today does not know the day or the hour of his return because he's been reinstated to full glory as the God-man. Even a, gl a greater status of glory now as the resurrected Savior. Uh, so Jesus does know now, but still no one on earth as humans knows the day or the hour. That is still true, despite what Harold Camping says. He is about your laughing, you must know him. But anyway, he's on the radio. Uh, he wrote a book in the 19, early 1990s. You can find it in the library. It was called 1994. I've looked at the book, actually read through the book. Years ago, and he predicted Jesus would come in 1994. And wait, that didn't happen. Um, 
then he wrote another book and came up with another thesis and after, after 1994. And then he predicted other dates when Jesus would return. And it keeps changing because every time the year comes around, you've got to get a new date. I think it's now 2012, if I'm not mistaken, in May or maybe it's 2011. Uh, he's got the day and the hour now, and uh, that is wrong. As a matter of fact, that's the mark of a false prophet. Uh, uh, Hal Lindsey wrote a book in the early 1970s that actually sold millions of copies, not just in the Christian world, but all over the world, The Late Great Planet Earth. I read that again recently. It's a short book, and he predicted Jesus would return in 1984. Uh, that hasn't happened, and he has since written another book and changed the date. Um, so you, you don't be misled. What Jesus said still stands. Nobody knows the day or the hour here on earth. Uh, nevertheless, just because we don't know the day or the hour, we can't minimize the truth of the coming of the Messiah because there is much we do know about the coming of the Messiah. we got 22 chapters in the book of Revelation that talk about the end of the age and the coming of the Messiah that God wants us to know and be accountable for and live out practically. So there is much that we do know. And even though we don't know the day or the hour, do you know we do know the sequence of Christ's coming. We know the chronology. As a matter of fact, if you were to ask me, do you know when... The second coming of Jesus Christ is, I would say, yes, I know exactly when it is. And then you'd say, heretic or hypocrite. Well, then I'd say, well, let me limit it a little bit to the words of Jesus in terms of the chronology and sequence that we definitely do know when the coming of the Messiah is at the second coming. Because in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the tribulation, the beginning of the tribulation, the midpoint of the tribulation, the conclusion of the tribulation. And then he says this in Matthew 24, verse 29. Jesus said this, but immediately after the tribulation. When is the second coming of Jesus Christ? It is immediately after the tribulation. That's pretty much all we can say. So there is some specificity there in terms of when Christ's return is. He does want his people to know, to be prepared. And that's why he gave us... Matthew 24 and 25 and 22 chapters of Revelation. Uh, so we know some things about it. And finally, it's important to study eschatology and the coming of Christ and know details about it that have been revealed because there's many benefits to knowing the truth and the details. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I think about Harold Camping, who's on the radio, passing himself off as a faithful Bible teacher who comes up with these fictitious dates of Christ all the time and then tells everybody that uh, get out of your church and the church doesn't exist on earth anymore and God has judged and punished the church. So just go to a Bible study and leave everybody else's church and then send me money, by the way, and here's my address. And I'm not kidding. I, I listen to him on the radio. It's very deceptive, but the sad thing is you've got all these people that are sincere Christians calling in asking him questions. That's why it's important. Know the truth. The truth will set you free. And if you know the truth about Revelation, the sequence of Christ's coming, when he will return, that no man knows the hour, and knowing these things will actually protect us from deception and being misled by false teachers. That's one of the benefits, to prepare ourselves, to protect ourselves. Another important benefit of knowing the details regarding the coming of Christ um, is that it is motivating to know that Jesus is coming, how he's coming, what he's going to do when he comes is motivating for us. Uh, to be an evangelist, to pray for those who are lost, right? Very highly motivating it was for Paul. Uh, so it protects us from false teaching. Uh, also knowing about the, the coming of Jesus Christ is very encouraging, right? When you get down on the dumps in this world with all the trials and everything's weighing in on you, and you get very myopic and very discouraged. And is there anything greater than this life? And the answer is yes, the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, very encouraging to the saints knowing that this world is not our home, right? Our citizenship is where? In heaven. 
where we wait, we eagerly wait, says Paul in Philippians 3, not just wait, we eagerly wait for the glorious coming of Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly bodies into the pattern of His glorious resurrected body. That is an awesome truth. This is not our home. So the coming of Christ is very encouraging and gives us great hope. And finally, every communion, at least here once a month, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we talk about the coming of Christ. We even celebrate the coming of Christ every time we take communion or we're supposed to. Because in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, uh, we repeat Jesus' words through the Apostle Paul. And part of taking communion isn't just supposed to reflect on your sins that are forgiven, but we do this until He comes again. So part of that needs to be continually being reminded and worshiping God that He's a living God and He's a returning God. And I love the way that the, the New Testament phrases the fact that Jesus is going to return again. Because it doesn't say that Jesus is going to return again. It says... He is coming. There's a difference. It uses a present tense to refer to a future event. In other words, Jesus is going to return again versus he is coming. That second one, there's a great sense of urgency and imminence. As a matter of fact, you know what? It means he's on his way. Look out. He's on his way. Hooray. Hallelujah. He is on his way. He is coming again. And Jesus loved to say that. I am coming. Blessed truth. Well, let's go ahead and look at Revelation 19 now and some of the details there. Uh, it was hard. It was actually impossible to outline. It defies an outline. Uh, but just to uh, kind of break it up in a logical manner so we could flow through it. There's a lot of things that jumped out in this as I was studying it in terms of themes. One was uh, the description of the coming of Jesus Christ at his second coming answers the question of who is coming, not when but also what he's going to do when he returns. So those are the dominant themes coming through. Another thing that jumped out at me was all the names given to Jesus, the one who was coming again. So as we read through Revelation 19, 11 through 16, there's four names that are given to Jesus. And in the Bible, a name refers to the very character and essence of a person, whether it is God himself who has countless names throughout the Bible. And every name speaks of his very character. And this is true of Jesus. He's given four. The one who returns has four names and every one of those names reflects perfectly his character and who he is. Hence the emphasis on the one who is the one returning, not when. So let's go ahead and look at this. Who is this one who is returning and what is he going to do when he returns? So three points I think I gave you there in your outline. And the first one, uh, verses 11 and 12, the returning Christ is called faithful and true. He's called faithful and true according to verses 11 and 12. Uh, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it was called faithful and true. This is Jesus. He's faithful, he's true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. Actually, there's two names in this passage, 11 and 12. First one is faithful and true. But a couple of things before we get to that... Um, the beginning of verse 11, and I saw heaven opened. I saw heaven open, and that is actually describing what it's going to be like when Jesus returns the second time. Because in Matthew 24, it says that the, the, the coming of Christ, He's going to come in the heavens, and it says that every eye will see Him. Every eye will see Him. Every tribe, nation on planet Earth is going to see it when Jesus is unveiled in glory the second time. 
And I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 and 2. When Isaiah the prophet prayed 700 years before Christ came, he prayed, God, rend the heavens and come down to earth. This is really an answer to Isaiah's prayer. Come down to earth in glory and reveal who you truly are. And Jesus is going to do that. When he, he blazes through heaven, from the heavenlies, through the sky for all to see. And this is in contrast to the first coming of the Messiah. The first, who saw the coming of Jesus the first time he came? Born as a little baby, very obscure, hidden at night in darkness. Virtually nobody knew about it except those that were personally invited. And they were pretty much the scum of the earth from a human perspective. Shepherds, then a select few that God also invited, commoners, and the Magi. So his first coming was obscure and really nobody in the world knew about it. Just a very few people, unlike his second coming, the whole world is going to know about it and every person is going to be without excuse. Every eye will see him in his glorious coming. The heavens will be open and behold a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. So when Jesus returns, he's pictured as coming on a white horse. This is the uh, white is a symbol of victory, of cleanness, of a general who has just conquered and won the victory and won the war. This horse is the horse of a warrior, of a military figure, and that's exactly what it's trying to represent here when Jesus returns. He's returning on a white horse, the white horse of victory as a general, as a warrior, as the commander-in-chief, not of just a country, but of the entire earth and the heavens and the earth. It's amazing. Jesus returns on this horse. Well, is it a real horse? I, I believe it's a real horse. Well, horses can't fly. Well, this one can't. I did a lot of study. I thought, wow, this horse apparently knows how to fly. That's what the Bible says. Well, no, it's just figurative. Figurative what? Coming in on a white horse. Zechariah 9.9 predicted that the Messiah would come on a donkey. That wasn't figurative. It was a real donkey. Well, it wasn't flying, but it was a real donkey. So I just think that... And it's kind of interesting. Zechariah 9.9 refers to the first coming of the Messiah on a donkey. And Zechariah 9.10, the very next verse, refers to Christ at His second coming. So I, I would say this is probably a real horse. It's a supernatural horse. It's a heavenly horse. It's a horse will, who will live forever and never die. It's amazing. There are animals in heaven, supernatural ones that God made and created. We know that. So he's returning on this amazing white horse that everyone in the universe on planet Earth at that time is going to see. And then it talks about the one sitting on the horse. It is he who sat upon it. He is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. That whole phrase has to go together. This is who he is and why he comes. Who is he? He's the faithful and true one. Faithful, that just means simply that Jesus keeps his promises. This is the promises of the Old Testament that God has made regarding the coming of the Messiah. Because there are countless dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies that were made regarding of the Messiah that have not been fulfilled yet. And unfortunately, a lot of people, a lot of Christians, want to spiritualize those because they haven't happened literally and they can't believe that they're going to happen literally. Like countless prophecies saying that the Messiah will come as a military figure, a military leader with a sword waging war on the earth to usher in a kingdom, to rescue the believing Jews, to rescue His people, to literally wipe out and conquer His enemies on earth. They can't believe it, but it is literal. And those are the promises that are going to be literally fulfilled. And that's why it says this one who comes, he is faithful. He will fulfill every unfulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament that is yet to be fulfilled. He's faithful. He's going to keep his word. He's the only one that is a promise keeper. Did you know that? The promise keeper has a member of one. It is Jesus. Everybody else eventually breaks their promises. 
That's our lot as humanity. So Jesus, the promise keeper, he is the faithful one. Not only is he the faithful one, when he does come, he is true. And the word for true here means that which corresponds to reality. In other words, he tells it like it is. He bases all of his judgments on all of the facts, not just some of the facts or the partial facts or twisted facts or massaged facts, but facts as they are, completely, totally unveiled for all to see. And that's what it says in Hebrews 4, that Jesus is judge. Everything is totally open and laid bare to him with whom we have to do as judge. That is Jesus. So he makes all of his basements, all of his judgments, all of his actions are based on total, absolute unmitigated truth, things that are true and correspond to reality. He's the only judge, by the way, that can do that. We have limited judges. We have false judges in all of our courts across the land. We have uh, false judges all the time. Anytime you're trying to make a judgment between maybe your siblings and you don't have all the facts, that's hard to do as a parent. Actually, that's that's impossible to do. So many times we are arbiters and judges and um, fact and data gathering. Okay, you sit down. Okay, go ahead. you got 40 seconds. And then, and then over here, and then you try to get all the facts and you try to be wise and discerning. But as parents, we fail uh, many times because we are not true. We don't know everything. Everything is not based on all of the facts all the time. That is not true of Jesus. He is totally true. He's incarnate truth. So everything that he does is perfect and needs to be done that way. That's why we can't question Jesus in the rest of this passage, because it's kind of harsh. The details of why he comes and what he does when he comes is actually startling. And challenges our sensibilities, even offends our sensibilities, if you will. As we go through it, you'll see. Because what's he doing when he comes as the faithful and true judge? He is coming at the second coming, not to seek and to save that which was lost, which he did the first time. Not as the meek and lowly, humble Savior like he did the first time. He's coming at the second coming in righteousness to judge and wage war. Wow. To humanity, that is offensive, but that is reality. That's glorious, a glorious truth to the Christian because we cry out for justice. God, this is an unjust world. We want justice finally, once and for all. And God said, vengeance is mine, said God. And this is where it uh, begins to be acted out. So Jesus is returning on a glorious white horse as commander in chief of the entire planet Earth and all of heaven, totally faithful to all of his promises, totally true. Because he's omniscient, he'll follow on all of that and he will judge accordingly. He will judge faithfully. He will judge perfectly. And he's also part of that judging is going to be waging war on his enemies. The details of that war that he's going to wage is actually in Revelation 7, 19, 17 through 21. We're going to look at that. He's going to wage war on his enemies who are on earth when he comes out of the sky. He's coming out of the sky on a horse and he's going to land probably in Jerusalem at the airport there on the Mount of Olives. Well, there isn't an airport there where he's going to make one when he lands. He's going to crush it, according to Zechariah 14. And in Acts chapter 1, he told his disciples, I'm going to return the same way that you saw me leave. Well, where did he leave? He left and ascended off of the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14 says he will return landing on the Mount of Olives. It's going to be glorious. And one of the first things he's going to do is he's going to judge and make war with his enemies. Snuff them out. And that's a right thing to do. And here's the judge described in verse 12. Who is he? Well, his eyes are like a flame of fire. This is reminiscent of Revelation chapter 1 that described Jesus that way. That just means he sees everything. He knows that he is omniscient. Nothing, and he's purifying in terms of his judgment and evaluation. He knows even the motives and the intents of people's hearts, which we do not do, right? Man looks on the outside, says Samuel. God is the only one that looks at the heart. But plenty of people try to look at the heart, don't we? And that's wrong, but only Jesus can pierce 
the heart of a human being. He knows our thoughts, everything. His eyes are like a flame of fire. How do you know that his... Uh, oh, and then upon his head are many diadems. Many diadems. So there's two words in uh, Revelation for crowns. There's the Stephanos, the victor's crown, and then there's the diadem, which is the crown for royalty, the one with authority, the one who has the right to rule a king, the sovereign one. And that's what Jesus has. He has not just a diadem, the right to rule the sovereign one on his head. He has many, countless diadems. Because he's not just a king. He's a king over all kings. He's the ultimate king. There's no greater king than Jesus Christ as he returns. So this speaks of his unlimited authority, his total omnipotence, his sovereignty and right to reign and judge. It's amazing. The diadem's on his head. And look at this, verse 12. And he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He has a name written upon him. We don't know where it's written. A name written on him which no one knows except himself. You wouldn't believe how many commentaries on Revelation tell me what the name is. It's like, how, how did you do that? I won't even go in and tell you what those suggestions are because I, I personally believe that nobody knows. And it could very well be that no one will ever know. And I think, again, this speaks to the very character who, who Jesus is here because he is a man. He's the God man when he returns. Jesus returns not as a, a mist or a phantom or a shadow or a spirit. He returns in a physical body, a physical resurrected body that has flesh and bones, no blood. It still has the scars. And he's the glorious resurrected Jesus Christ returning in a body on a physical, literal, supernatural white horse. And he lands on earth. But just so that we are reminded that he's not just a great man like every other religion on planet Earth believes. And that's the difference between false religion and Christianity. Just about every religion believes that Jesus was a good man who became God. The Bible teaches that Jesus is God who became a man. The exact opposite. And that's what he is here. So this is a good reminder. Jesus is not just a good man. This is a reminder that, yeah, although Jesus is personal, He is intimate, He is imminent, immediately accessible, not only is He imminent, He is transcendent. There are things about Jesus for all eternity that will transcend our capabilities, our understandings as human beings, as finite human beings. We will always be separate. There will always be a chasm between the creature and the Creator, Jesus Christ, even in heaven. Yes, He is my older brother. Yes, He is my Savior. Yes, He is my friend. But He will forever be the glorious Savior who is eternal God, who always deserves my worship, even in heaven. And this name that no one knows speaks of that character about Jesus Christ. He's not just man. He's the God-man. That's awesome. So his imminence and his transcendence. So that's the faithful and true Jesus Christ who's returning to judge and wage war. Let's go on to the second one, and that is the returning Christ is called the Word of God. The Word of God, 13 to 15. Uh, and he is clothed, Jesus. He's, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. The word wrath is used there. So the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ is a coming of judgment and of wrath. We can't escape it. Oh, I don't like that. That hurts my feelings. That makes me queasy. That shouldn't be the mindset of a Christian. Because the Christian is supposed to have a mature perspective of who God is. He's a 
loving, merciful Savior and a holy judge. And they go together and they can't be separated. And this is our great, glorious God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and the emphasis here is now here's another name given to him. So he's got his name is faithful and true. His name, he's got a name that nobody knows. So he is transcendent, almighty, eternal deity. And also specifically, in contrast to being transcendent deity of things which we cannot know, the contrast comes right on the heels, and that is He's the Word of God. The Word of God all throughout the Bible refers to the revelation of God, that which is given by God for us that we can know, so that we can't know His name. There are things about Him we don't know. The secret things belong to the Lord, says the Old Testament. But there are things that we need to know that God has revealed to us to bless us. So there's a name we don't know about Christ, but balanced with that is Jesus is the Word of God. That is His name. The Word of God always refers to a revelation from God to man so that we can better understand who God is and what reality is about from God's perspective. The Word of God. So Scripture is considered the Word of God. Written Scripture is called the Word of God. The preached message is called the Word of God, especially by the prophets and the apostles. So the preached Word was the Word of God. The spoken Word was the Word of God. The written Scriptures is called the Word of God because these are all revelations about God that are true. And the ultimate, the consummate revelation of God to humanity is Jesus Christ incarnate. He is the full revelation of God, according to John chapter 1. The fullness of God's glory and truth was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That is why He is the quintessential Word of God. And so that's what it's talking about here. He's revealed everything we need to know. Do you know everything that you can know about God and Jesus? No, but I know, but I have everything that I need to know because God gave it to us. Everything we're responsible for knowing. The Word of God. And that speaks of a personal God. He wants us to know information. He doesn't want to keep us in the dark like the Greek gods or the deistic gods who, who do things and then they run away and they don't tell you what they did and keep it a secret. He, 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 figure it out, humanity. Drive you crazy. Not the God of the Bible. He's a revealing God. The God of the Word. The God who reveals. The God who wants a personal relationship that is intimate, that is deep, that is eternal. And He can only do that by revealing specific information about who He is and how we can know Him. That's the precious Word of God, Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 13 that when he comes on his white horse in glory to land in the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, as they see him blazing in the sky, he's got a robe and that robe is dipped in blood. And just so you know, uh, the blood on that robe is not the blood of his sacrifice than when he died on the cross. Uh, the blood on that robe specifically fulfills prophecy in the Old Testament, specifically in Isaiah, where it says that he's going to come to judge his enemies and he's going to judge his enemies by walking on them like they're grapes. That's the terminology used and in the Old Testament. And he crushes his enemy and he squashes them like grapes. And the grapes splatter and they, the blood gets on his robe. So that blood is the blood of judgment. It's what it is. Because he judges and wages war. It's graphic. It is startling. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. Verse 14. This is exciting. And the armies which are in heaven. So here's Jesus. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's Jesus on a white horse. Cool. And he's coming. And it says behind Jesus, there's just this army. No, there's a plurality of armies. And wait, it looks like, wait, they're on horses too. Boy, there's a lot of white horses. Wow, and they're, they're glorious. Their raiment is white and clean and bright. Who is, who is this behind the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God? Verse 14, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him, Jesus, on their white horses. I, I want to be one of those people. Amen. I volunteer myself. Amen, I hear you. Well, how can you say that? Maybe this is just angels. Well, actually, the context, I believe here, this is referring to redeemed saints. 
This is the body of Christ. These are, uh, these are Christians who have been resurrected and glorified and who have received at a, t- a time earlier their resurrection body. And they were clothed with the proper clothing as promised earlier in the book of Revelation chapter 3 when Jesus told those who overcome, those who overcome and become Christians, I will give you white clothing fit for heaven, fit for being with God. That's what this is. This is the white fine garment. Uh, as a matter of fact, specifically, if you look in the same chapter there, uh, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and those who come to the marriage supper of the Lamb are those who are dressed properly and appropriately. That's Revelation 19, verse 8. It says, And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. That's the bride of Christ. Fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. These are believers. These aren't angels. Are angels coming with Christ at His return? Absolutely but not just angels, the saints are returning with Him in glory. So on these horses are redeemed saints, resurrected, glorified saints. At a minimum, the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ that was raptured before the tribulation, before the second coming of Christ, following Christ on their white horses in glory. There are a couple of New Testament verses. If you got your Bible there, you want to flip to them real quick because this is not a solitary teaching of just Revelation 19. Paul said this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Listen to this. He's talking about how great Jesus Christ is. How He died on the cross, rose from the dead, did this to forgive our sin. This, this great Savior, verse 4. And when Christ, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, when Jesus comes again, then you, he's talking to Christians, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Isn't that amazing? We are going to be unveiled as glorious beings Vice regents following Jesus as our commander in chief as he comes down on his horse and we are riding our flying horses as well to land in Jerusalem to rule on his behalf for 1000 years on earth. And first Timothy chapter three, verse 13, basically, I mean, first Thessalonians chapter three, verse 13 says the same thing. The saints are going to come with Jesus and we will be revealed with him in glory. What a great truth. So it's very encouraging. Uh, so we're following him in white linen, clean following him on horses. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword. We don't have swords at the time. We will be given swords according to Revelation chapter 2. Or we'll be giving a rod of iron to sit on his throne and smash the nations and rule them on behalf of Christ. But it is initiated by Jesus Christ. Verse 15, and so when he lands out of his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with his sword, there's one thing you do with the sword here and that is you kill with it. You execute judgment. And that's what Jesus is going to do so that with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of Almighty God. So that's his first act of business when he returns to earth at the end of the age, as there's going to be this battle. There's going to be an uprising against Christ when he returns, spearheaded by Satan himself, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the ten kings, and all unbelievers who hate God. And they're going to try to take Jesus Christ on, and Jesus is literally going to snuff them out with the sword of his mouth, And as it says, he will smite the nations. Meeting out finally the divine justice of God that has been waiting for 6,000 years of world history. That is the coming of Jesus Christ. Who he is, glorious military judge. What he does, he judges in righteousness and wages war against his enemies. Let's go on to point number three. The fourth name of Jesus Christ. So he's called faithful and true. He's given a name that no one knows. He's called the word of God. And then finally in verse 16, another name compound name that was actually used in uh, Revelation 17, I think 14 earlier, in reverse order, when it called him Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But the returning Christ is called the King of Kings. 
which is fitting because he has many diadems. He's the supreme king. He rules over all kings. He's the eternal king. And verse 16 says, and on his robe and on his thigh. The word for robe there is like uh, what a military Roman general would wear, this long, flowing, beautiful, usually expensive robe. And as he's sitting on a horse, the most obvious part that you see on a general is the thigh area. And that's exactly, there's a name written on this robe in his thigh area that can be seen emblazoned across the sky by all. It's in all capital letters, I think, in just about every English Bible, and appropriately so. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has another name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you know Jesus Christ personally, that is your Savior. That is your personal, intimate Savior, your friend. He is also King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Isn't that amazing? And once again, this phrase, King of Kings, it is a superlative. It is the quintessential representation that Jesus has absolute, total sovereignty over everything happening in all of life, the universe, the past, the present, and the future. He is in charge. You've been following what's going on over in Egypt? Following the revolution? You know, I'm watching all the news channels. I'll be honest with you, nobody knows what's going on. And you've got all these pundits. Nobody knows what's going on. Who's taken over? Why did he get booted out? Did he really get booted out? Is it a coup? Uh, for those of you that aren't aware of the king or the leader of uh, Egypt for the last 30 years, Mubarak is an uprising about two weeks ago, and then they were asking him to step down, and he refused, and then all of a sudden he stepped down sort of, kind of, maybe. But we don't know what's going on. And Egypt is in an uproar. Isn't that interesting? The Bible talks about Egypt from Genesis to the New Testament. So... It's like the Bible, the Bible is always current because of what's going on in the world. The hotspot is the Middle East. And here the Bible speaks authoritatively on that, even on, on Egypt and what's going on. But the point is, you got a guy who reigned supreme for 30 years with an iron fist as a benevolent dictator. And now his demise has come. And it happens time and time again all throughout history. That will never happen with Jesus Christ, even though nobody else knows what's going on over in Egypt and what the future is for the Middle East and what the future is for America. Jesus knows because he's in charge. Do you know that? He is orchestrating, actually, what's going on in Egypt right now. As a matter of fact, he's moving the chess pieces around for the checkmate to fulfill what Revelation says at his coming. Because he is King of kings and Lord of lords. So when I hear about... Uh, stuff going on in the Middle East. I don't get upset. I don't get nervous. I don't question. I just know, Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are in charge. You are on the throne. And everything is being fulfilled to a T according to your plan. This is absolutely amazing. History is his story. So take comfort in that, Christian, your personal Savior. And remember that this week when when you're inundated with questions and uh, thing, and sometimes... Uh, things that are supposed to shock us or scare us or make us paranoid and make us uncertain about the future. We stand on solid ground, the rock of Jesus Christ, the great King of kings and Lord of lords. And I want to close uh, with Philippians. I alluded to it earlier, but I want to read Philippians chapter 3 at the end of the chapter regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ so that we get in our mind and, may, and remember that one of the most important things that we are supposed to know as Christians about the second coming of Jesus Christ and the reality of it, that he's on the way. It's supposed to be encouraging for us as a Christian and motivating. And I can't think of any more encouraging words than Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. So let's just take it in and bask in this great reality. It is faithful and true. Philippians 3, verse 20 and following. Paul says to the Christian, for our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is in heaven. Our eternal home is in heaven. 
For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the early Christians used to say, Maranatha, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. What a great prayer. What a great word. Maranatha. So we eagerly wait for the coming Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21. By the way, it's interesting. When Paul refers to the coming of Jesus Christ at his second coming to Christians, he says, remember, it's to your Savior. He's not your judge. We don't have to fear the second coming of Jesus Christ as Christians, do we? Because he's not coming to judge us. He's already our Savior. He has already saved us, forgiven all of our sins, died for us, rose for us, intercedes on our behalf. He is our Savior, not our judge. Not a condemning way. So encouraging. We wait for the blessed, gracious, merciful Savior. Jesus Christ as Christians. We welcome it. We look forward to it. We're motivated by it. We can't wait. I used to be really excited about the coming of Christ when I was a new Christian. For probably the first five to ten years. Then it kind of started to wear off on me. Because you get disappointed. Man, I thought Jesus was going to come in the first, the next five years. Well, He didn't. But you can't give up on it, Christian. He's still going to come. It is imminent, we don't know. But it's a reality and it's going to come. But a lot of new Christians are like that. They get saved and they learn this glorious truth and they think He's going to come tomorrow. Or maybe tonight and they stand on the roof. I'm ready, Jesus, in their pajamas. Take me home. And I'll never forget when one of our kids was really young and we were driving around Sunnyville, I think it was. And they must have had a Sunday school lesson recently on the topic of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Three years old, they rolled down the window and started shouting out to the... Uh, passersby as we were driving our car. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. It's like out of the mouth of babes. That's true. We just don't know when. But my child who was three was excited about the prospect. Verse 21. So we're eagerly waiting for the Savior, Jesus Christ. And when He does come for us, He's going to transform. He's going to metamorphosize. Totally change from the inside out. Metamorphosize. Transform the body of our humble state. Our dying body. Change our body, resurrection truth, the body of our humble state into conformity with the body, get this, of His glory. His glorious resurrection body, that's what our body's going to be like. The body of His glory, by the, how's He going to do this? By the exertion of the power that He has. He is almighty, eternal God, Jesus is, and He can do it. He can change even your body. Get a load of that one. The exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself and all God's people said, Maranatha, Maranatha. And all God's people said, Maranatha. One more time. And all God's people said, Maranatha. Beautiful. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together, our time to, to worship in so many ways, uh, through song, through prayer, by letting the Holy Spirit be our teacher of supernatural spiritual truth. God, I pray that every person that knows you personally as a Christian through Jesus Christ is encouraged by these words, the, the prospect of your return, how glorious it will be. And amazingly, not just as spectators, but we get to participate in it. That is mind-boggling. Thank you for allowing us to have that part. God, I just pray that this truth would dominate our thinking this week, that it would drown out uh, the worries of the world uh, the unknowns about the future all around us and that we'd give you the glory as a result and that we could live for you from day to day crying out from our heart, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We pray in Christ's name, amen. 
Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.